Welcome and good morning to each and all of you on this another fine and beautiful Sunday morning. Today in Scotland, of course, we celebrate St. Andrew's Day. St. Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland. He's often referred to as the first apostle because it was him, of course, who introduced Peter to Jesus. He also brought a group of Greek seekers to meet Jesus. And of course, he brought the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish to Jesus, who would later use them to perform one of his most famous miracles. Andrew, it seems, was a natural evangelist. In fact, it was this zeal for evangelism that eventually led to his unfortunate death. He was killed for baptizing Maximilia, the wife of the Roman governor, Patrius. Patrius had Andrew crucified on a saltire or an X-shaped cross. His symbol, the saltire, is featured on the flag of Scotland. And today, as I say, we remember Andrew and we give thanks for his influence and for his ministry and for his blessings to the Church of God. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, on this Sunday morning, we want to thank you to thank you for the truth that the love with which you looked with upon Andrew, that ordinary fisherman, is the same love with which you look upon each and all of us this morning. Together we honour Andrew for the witness of his life and the sacrifice of his martyrdom, and we are pleased to call him our national patron saint. Today, God, we give you thanks for giving each and all of us a gospel story to tell. A gospel story that has songs of joy and has put a vibrant living hope in all of our hearts. Today we give you thanks for the fact that we too have been privileged with the same calling that you gave to Andrew, to be a disciple, to be a fellow worker with Jesus in the mission of God. It is our prayer, God, that the words of our mouth, the praise and meditations of our hearts and the deeds of our bodies will be a blessing to you this morning. This we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And now, friends, Stephen will bring us our first reading from Psalm 143. The psalm is a wonderful prayer for deliverance and help in a time of danger. And so in many ways, it is a very apt prayer for us to pray during this time of pandemic. Our first passage this morning is Psalm 143, a reading from the New International Version. Psalm 143. O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works. And consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. 
Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will be like those who go down to the pit. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Rescue me from my enemies, O Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes. For I am your servant. Will you join me as together we pray the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us for our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forevermore. And now Stephen is going to bring us our second reading from the Gospel of Mark. As he reads the story, I'd like you to keep in mind a few questions. As you listen, ask yourself, who in this story was afraid of Jesus? And why? And who was not afraid of Jesus? And why? And perhaps we could also ask, who are we most like in this story? And why? Our second passage comes from the Gospel of Mark at chapter 5, reading verses 1 to 20. Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. 
of the demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about two thousand in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Well, as always, there's a lot to say and not enough time to say it, especially in relation to that passage from Mark chapter 5 that was read to us earlier. So let me, if you like, prime your mental pumps with a question. Every week, you and I gather together on the first day of the week, and together we pray the same prayer. And as part of that prayer, we pray, your kingdom come. But what does the kingdom of God look like? How would we recognize its presence among us? I can tell you that the kingdom of God is not the same thing as the church of God. The kingdom has more to do with the sovereignty of God and the sovereign acts of God. And the church is simply one of those spaces where that sovereignty should be most evident. So what does the kingdom of God look like? How would we recognize its presence among us and indeed its presence among those whom we live among? Like I say, as Christians, you and I pray this every week. So it behoves us to think about what it is exactly we're looking for and how we will know when we have received it and seen it. Now, the last time we were together, I told you that the gospel experience can differ from person to person and even indeed from community to community. As an example of how it can differ from community to community, I referred to a book called Christianity Rediscovered by a man called Vincent Donovan. Donovan is a missionary in Africa at this time, and he explains that his particular mission has adopted a presence evangelism approach to mission. By that I mean they are simply engaged in the building of schools and hospitals, and they hope that through the experience of passing through the schools and receiving the help of hospitals, people will be open and become converted to Christianity. But Donovan and his colleagues quickly realized that the Maasai tribe were particularly immune to this approach and that there was very little or no converts amongst the Maasai. They would go through the school system. They would receive the benefits and blessing of medical care without ever engaging with Christianity. So 
Donovan went to his bishop and he asked if he could change his tack. He would simply engage in proclamation evangelism and nothing else. The bishop gave him the permission to do it. And so Donovan went to a Maasai chief in his area and he asked him, he said, can I just tell your people the story of God? I'm not going to give you any medicines, any school books. I'm not going to promise you any kind of material things. I'm just going to tell you the story of God. And the chief agreed. So over the course of the year, he shares the story of God and of Israel and of Jesus. And at the end of the time, he says to the chief and the people in the tribe, he says, I'm going away now for two weeks. And you can think whether or not, having heard the story, you want to become followers of Jesus. You want to be baptized. So two weeks later, he returns to the tribe and he asks them what they want to do. And the chief tells them they all want to be baptized. Well, of course, Donovan says at that point he made a classic Western mistake. He went into an individualist type of mentality and he turned to the chief and he said, that's great, but that guy over there, he's not ready to be baptized. He can't yet become a follower of Jesus because he doesn't fully understand what was going on. And that woman over there, she wasn't here for all of these lessons, so she's not, she can't be baptized. She can't yet become a follower. And the chief stops him and says, I'm sorry, either we will all be baptized or none of us will be baptized. Yes, he is slow. But in the tribe, we have quick, clever people. And the quick and the clever will help the slow and the dull to catch up. And that woman, yes, she wasn't here for every message and every lesson. That was because she was away in other villages, sharing with them what you had shared with us. And when she came back in the evening, we told her what you told us. So either we all get baptized or none of us get baptized. At which point Donovan submitted to the chief's wisdom. Now in the story that was read to us, we are told that Jesus goes with his disciples to the region of the ten cities, an area called Decapolis. It's an area that is predominantly Gentile with very few Jewish people there. In fact, it was widely avoided by Jewish people. To the Jewish religious mindset, Jesus, in a sense, is entering a no-go area filled with the possibility of finding himself and his disciples rendered ritually impure. Why? Because he's going to be engaging with no-go people in a no-go area and going against, if you like, no-go religious taboos. What becomes evident the more you read the gospel and the book of Acts, especially in the light of the Old Testament, is that part of Jesus' mission is to restore Israel's sense of call to be the missional people of God. When the people of God lose their sense of being called to mission, they inevitably resort to concerns about management. They move from engaging in proclamation to being preoccupied with preservation. And the preservation mentality is always concerned with isolation, control, and exclusion. But here we see Jesus taking his infant church into a new mission field. Jesus, in other words, is going outside the safe, self-imposed boundaries of the faith community. Now stop and think about that for a moment. What does that tell us about Jesus? What does it tell us about the church what does it tell us about the work of the kingdom of God? Now, we've had the story read to us. We know what happened to the man. We know what happened to the demons. We know what happened to the pigs. 
So when the swineherds have gone back and informed the people what had happened, the villagers have now rushed out to assess the damage. But the first thing they see is the man, the man whom they had ostracized from their community. And they see that Jesus has changed him. That's how the gospel works, friends. You cannot have a genuine faith encounter with Jesus and remain the same. They notice that he is no longer naked, that Jesus has clothed him. That's another truth. That what Jesus does in the heart of a person is always, always worked out on the outside of that person. They see that he is in his right mind. In a sense, Jesus has calmed him. He has been changed spiritually, physically, and mentally by his encounter with Jesus. But then the people turn away from looking at the man, and instead they survey the damage to their property. Now, it's no surprise the damage that has been done, what has happened to the pigs. Evil, by its very nature, is parasitic. It needs good in order to feed off. It needs the good in order to have something to corrupt and destroy. But here we are, confronted by the personal impact that Jesus has had in the life of the man. The villagers have turned away, in a sense, if you like, to view the scenery. Do you know that one of the more subtle and unconscious ways that we protect ourselves from the challenge of Jesus, from the challenge of the story of God in the Bible, is often by directing our attention to biblical nouns. Biblical nouns can be so different from the everyday nouns that we use in everyday life. They require some kind of explanation and translation. Things like, well, what's an ark? What is an angel? What's, what, what's an archangel? What's the difference between an angel and an archangel? What's a Philistine? What's a Syrophoenician? And so we educate ourselves with interesting, fascinating tidbits about biblical nouns and imagine that in the process we are becoming better Christians, all the while avoiding the verbs of Scripture. And this, unfortunately, is particularly so the case if you are from the West. Did you know, for example, that Western infants learn nouns faster than they do verbs, whilst for Asian babies, it's the other way around. I would just say this to you. If you're looking for a way to make the Bible relevant, you could start by paying attention to the verbs. So Mark, Mark here brings the villagers and their attitudes into a sharp contrast here. They saw the healed man, but from their response, it would appear that they valued property more than they valued people. How about us? Do we value property and possessions more than people? What is really preventing you and I from engaging in a more proactive mission to meet the spiritual, material and emotional needs of others? Notice how the villagers react to the change in the man. Sometimes when the things we fear most are transformed and brought directly into our midst, our natural inclination is fear, or at the very least to have feelings of psychological discomfort, especially when our old stereotypes are shattered. And it is even more so the case when long-held philosophical and social presuppositions are challenged. 
The habits of the world are hard to break. What Jesus offers cannot help but change our lives, challenging habits that have been derived from the love of things and the fear of death. Sometimes, like those who ask Jesus to leave the neighborhood, in the words of the poet W.H. Auden, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. When long-held philosophical and social presuppositions are challenged, we will naturally find ourselves filled with a desire to rid ourselves of the change, especially changes we cannot explain and do not have control over and do not particularly want to engage with. I saw this happen, for example, in Taiwan. I was sharing this story with a group of uh, Taiwanese farmers, about 20 or 30 of them, and we were sitting. They had, again, no background in Christianity. There was no knowledge of, of church, etc. We were simply looking at Bible stories together. And I asked them what they thought of this story. And again, their sympathy was with the swineherds, the guys who were looking after the sheep or the, the, the pigs. In fact, I remember one farmer saying, that's a lot of pork. By the way, Taiwanese people love pork. They eat about 10 million pigs a year. But um, they were very concerned about the fact that the swineherds would lose their jobs, that property had been damaged, that owners would lose money over what had happened. And as a result, there were serious material consequences to the community. Uh, this is probably symptomatic of the fact that Asian people have real difficulty disentangling an object or a subject from their surroundings. That's why when I said to them, but, but look at the man, look at the man, he's been, he's been delivered. The demons have been cast out. And, and again, they came back to me and they said, yes, that was a stupid thing to do. At least when he was demon-possessed, everybody knew where the demons were. Now your Jesus has let them out and nobody knows where they are. They could be back harassing the village. So they said to me, it seems to us that your Jesus is a troublemaker and that what he is doing is not good for the community. So we would do the same as the people in the village. We would ask him to leave if that happened in our community. Interesting thinking about how different people and different communities would experience the good news. I'll close because time is moving on. I'll look, look at this story again. Go away today and read it. And as you do so, ask yourself, who in this story was afraid of Jesus and why? Who was not afraid of Jesus and why? And who are we most like in this story and why? God bless you, church. Friends, when you now join me in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning needing, like the Gadarene demonic, needing as much as wanting your peace, your presence, your protection. Lord, we ask of you today that you will help us to follow you faithful and faithfully in these times of fear. Please, God, deliver all of us from succumbing to the captivity.
activity of that fear. Save us from an unhealthy preoccupation with preservation. God grant us bold spirits and brave hearts so that like Jesus, we too may be willing, always willing, to cross over to the other side, to go to those so-called no-go people and those no-go areas, that we may be a help to those who need it most. Help us to be a help to all whom you put in our way. Grant that together all of us, like the gathering demoniac, might know the joyful blessing and new sense of purpose that is ours and your salvation. We also ask that during this time you may give to our government leaders at both local and national level the wisdom, the foresight and the courage to do always what is best for the welfare of all, both native and migrant, rich and poor, old and young, sick and healthy. We especially pray for all those who face the challenges of ill health, especially those who face the challenges of mental health, that they may know your help, your comfort and your support, and the help and comfort of the support of your people. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, Church, may the grace and peace of God the Father be multiplied to you. May each and all of you know the blessing of God the Son's friendship. And may you all know the joyful empowering of God the Holy Spirit throughout this day and the coming week. Amen. God bless you.